This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Photographer, model, and muse to two of the greatest musicians of our time. Patty Boyd is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Her new book, My Life in Pictures, published by Real Art Press, is a stunning collection of her personal photographs, capturing the essence and zeitgeist of the bohemian rock and roll world of the 1960s and early 70s. I had the pleasure to talk to Patty about all of this and more in front of a live audience at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida. So, greetings, Patty, and welcome to Books and Books. Thank you, Mitchell. Hello. I just want to say how thrilled I am to be here this evening with Patty. In fact, I think what, it, what, what occurred is when word got out that I was doing this, I uh, got emails coming from everybody I knew saying I was the luckiest guy alive. And to be frank, after spending about five minutes with Patty uh, in conversation in the back, I am the luckiest guy alive. And I, I also have to say that this is, for those of you who have not gotten this yet or read through it, you are in for one of the most enjoyable treats that you will have uh, uh, dealing with a book. It, I spent hours with this and uh, was enthralled. Um, and I just wanted to start off by saying that, uh, you know, Patty, you've had incredible success with your autobiography. It was a number one bestseller. It was a New York Times bestseller. In fact, it was a bestseller, I think, everywhere in the world. And you wrote of your life in that book in a very, very moving way. And you talked a lot about the details of your life. This book made me equally moved. And it made, I became moved in a very different kind of way. And that leads me to the question, and maybe I gave a bit of the answer, why this book and why now? Uh, do you know, I get uh, quite a lot of emails and letters from you know, very young girls, fans, saying that they wish they'd been around in the 60s, they loved the clothes then, please, please, would I do a book? And so I thought, hmm, maybe they're right. And uh, looking at how many photographs I have, I mean, I was astounded about how much work I'd done without realizing it, because when you're modeling, you sort of turn into a sort of fantasy world and wear whatever clothes you're meant to wear for the shoot, and it's not me, it's a, a, you know, a person I've created who would do all these lovely moves to be photographed. And uh, so, of course, I've forgotten everything. And, uh, until we um, came across 
so many photos. And my publishers are wonderful because they put, the, put it all together in a nice chronological way. So in a way, I see it as a fashion history, actually. I, I, think, I think you've succeeded in that. You've succeeded in that and more because it's a very personal fashion history as well. I want to read a little something from your wonderful editor, Dave Brolin. Uh, he wrote a little bit about, you know, how this book came about and why he, you know, what the, what the, uh, some of the, um, some of the, some of the struggles in putting the book together and some of the concepts behind the book. And he says, this book could have been full of photos of Patty as a model working with the world's greatest photographers, highlighting the dynamic changes through the 1960s, both in fashion and in Patty's life. But that is only part of the story. So this book tells you even more of the story. And I thought maybe what I would do is take the audience through a little bit of a uh, ride through this book, which gives them a sense of what's before them. So let's start at the beginning. Would you talk, I, I found it really fascinating. You have a start with a beautiful photograph of your family in Nairobi in Kenya. Can you talk a bit about your early life with your family? Uh, yeah, I was very privileged to, um, with my family, live in Kenya, East Africa. My grandparents went there after living in India for many years. And I think after the war, my parents didn't really think England was a, a very nice, happy place. So we moved to where my grandparents were. And I grew up in the most idyllic situation of, you know, beautiful house, beautiful gardens, and the gardens just went on and on, non-manicured, and then into total wilderness of forests, etc. And then every so often, animals in the woodlands, the forests, would get lost and start coming towards our house. So, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, this is a normal life where giraffes are suddenly in the garden or, you know, oh, there's a great big snake trying to get into my bedroom or, you know, I mean, I grew up in a, in a like, I don't know. It was just, it was really, really beautiful and lovely and um, I have extremely fond memories of being there as a child. And then you your family moved back to London, right? Yeah. And you have this great you have this great piece in the book where you say, I was at a Catholic boarding school run by nuns, and they never encouraged us to have a career of any kind. They just wanted us to meet someone and get married. I never wanted to get married. I was aware that there was that there were secretarial colleges, but I knew that was not for me. No, I think um I was a sort of rebellious young girl and I didn't want to do what my my mother did I didn't want to do what was normal and expected of me I knew there was something else out there I just kind of felt that there was something else there was a like a sort of a movement going on full of creative people painters fashion designers music obviously and uh, hello and I just I knew I felt there was something else I didn't want to be, you know, tied down to something that was normal. Well, considered normal. And and you didn't. Talk a little bit about what it was like in those early days of the 60s when you were a model. And talk a bit about those early photographers you worked with as well. Yeah, well, when you start 
becoming a model, you have to persuade photographers to take photographs so that you build up a nice portfolio. And with this portfolio, I'd go and see as many photographers as possible in London, hoping that they would give me a job. So this was, you know, quite an ongoing situation. And um, then I started getting jobs, and it was really exciting. But I also noticed, you living in London off the King's Road in Chelsea, boys were beginning to look really good. They were growing their hair long. <laughs> They're growing their hair long and girls were wearing kind of interesting clothes and sort of in a hippie-ish way. And then, of course, Mary Quant appeared on the scene, creating the most beautiful dresses, getting shorter and shorter as each year went on. And people like Ozzy Clark, who I absolutely adored. And there was Bieber and... Um, you know, think David Hockney was painting extraordinary paintings. P filmmakers were doing new and inventive things. People who did TV commercials were suddenly doing, doing them, doing commercials that were out of the ordinary. Really interesting. I mean, one I had to do was uh, for a shampoo, and I had to get into a Jaguar car and drive into a car wash, and luckily, in in the in the car was a little bag of shampoo and as the car was being washed I washed my hair <laughs> then of course woo, you know the car was being dried and my hair and then off I went <laughs> can you imagine now anyone thinking of doing a commercial for a shampoo like that it was just kind of off the wall it was really but it was great and so, you know, new things, everybody's been very creative. And then, of course, music and the Beatles uh, emerged and the Stones were around. And, you know, there was a big zeitgeist of uh, creativity. And I just felt it, really. I knew. And, and you were called one day by, you thought you were going to an um, audition for a commercial that Richard Lester was directing. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that in your first meeting with George? Yeah, I... Yeah, I was working with David Bailey and um, my agent had phoned his secretary saying after the session I was to go for an interview. So I arrived at the interview place, loads of girls as usual, and uh, we all went in one at a time. And when I went into the room, it was my turn with my photographs, I recognised one of the guys because I'd done a TV commercial with him only a couple of months earlier. And then I went home. They never tell you if you've got the job or anything. Just so you don't even know what it is. So I went home, and uh, my f agent phoned me in the afternoon, saying, "I wasn't to tell anybody, but I got a part in the Beatles film." I said, "Are you sure? I mean, <laughs> I haven't met them. I haven't, you know, how how come they want me?" And she said, "Well, the interview you went for." I said, "I thought it was for for a Smith's Crisps commercial." <laughs> No, it's for part in the Beatles film. And that I really wasn't to tell anyone. Big secret. So I told my then boyfriend, who actually who took the cover of this book, he took that photograph, I told him and he said, I bet you go off with Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh dear. Life had other plans for me. And, and, and George and you met, and that boyfriend stood in the way of that very first uh, uh, when he asked you out, right? Yes, yeah, he stood in the way of an invitation, because at the end of the, <coughs> the day of filming, 
uh, George asked me if I would like to go out with him that evening. And I said, I'm so sorry, I can't, because I'm seeing my boyfriend. And his face dropped. And I thought, oh, poor guy. Maybe he, maybe he, maybe he doesn't know anyone in London. That's, so, so I said, why don't you join us? <laughs> Not what he wanted to hear at all. Anyway, as luck would have it, I was called back about a week later because in those days we didn't have, didn't have mobile phones. And during that week, I realised that the boyfriend really had to be fired. <laughs> cruel. Am I cruel? No, we, you know, no. I, I sort of had a feeling that there was sort of a little excitement coming in my direction. Well, I, I was struck and it was really charming. Uh, you know, the the first date you went on with, with Brian Epstein, right, was there. And you, you talk about both of you being very shy. And I realized when I really started looking into it, I mean, you were 20 and 21, right? Yeah, we were very young. We were just kids. Yeah, absolutely. And Brian sweetly um, made a reservation in one of his clubs that he used to go to. So you could only go there if you remember. And uh, so he took us there. And he ordered the most amazing wine and great food and everything that we wouldn't have ordered. I mean, you know, we were only very young. But it was a little introduction to sort of trying to be grown up I suppose I don't know but it was you know it was very memorable well and Brian's influence is legendary but you also know you also see it when um, when you both decided to get married and George said something very telling I thought he said that Brian said what Brian said that you you can get married but you had to wait until a certain time <laughs> No, what happened was that George and I were in the car driving around London and he said, oh, I must go and see Brian, stay here. So he went into Brian's house and came back and he said, uh, if you want, we can get married. I've just asked Brian when we are recording or going on tour. So the date we can get married is, you know, 21st. And so um, it's not as if he asked if we could get married. He wanted to know what days the Beatles would be free. And with all the ups and downs in your relationship, I, I think this book is filled with joy, but there's also sadness. And the photograph you have in the book of the last time you saw George uh, before his death spoke to me about just how, how close you remained, uh, spiritually yeah. at least. In Absolutely. We were... I think we were spiritually entwined, you know, I think we were meant to have this relationship. But you know, sometimes relationships have a longevity, a life of their own, and you can't push it. I, we didn't want to push it, you know, it was the end. But we remained friends, which um, is always a good idea. There's a lot of lessons in this book. <laughs> Staying a friend is a good idea, is one of them. <laughs> What was it like being on the inside with Beatlemania? I know that you never toured with the Beatles, really. But what was it like? Were you aware of you know, what was happening culturally, um, no. being so close to it? No, I, I wasn't aware. <coughs> you see, I think what happens with time is, is that everything becomes more iconic. And so, you know, at the time, I, okay, I was there in the center, and I was really lucky to be hanging out with these amazingly fabulous guys who were so unique in the way that they communicated with each other. 
and they were so so funny and um i didn't really think like say a journalist or a historian or you know i just was enjoying being there with george and in the company of these great guys i couldn't look forward i i couldn't i couldn't imagine that you know here we are today talking about them and, and it seemed like you also had a couple of places that you found refuge in. One was Kinfond's, right? Was your home. That yeah, you had, ghastly. You had it was awful. Right. But you made it, it turned, you turned it into a piece of artwork. We did. It, it was end. so horrible. It was this white bungalow with nothing, I mean nothing, no retrieving, redeeming features at all. So um, we just got, I just got, Lots of tins of different color paint and many paint brushes. So we just painted the outside, and um, and I've said that you know in those days there were no mobile phones, and I know that Mick Jagger and, and Marianne came by one day, and they saw all these tins of paint and paint brushes. So they just wrote on the wall, Mick and Marianne were here. <laughs> <laughs> and homes really meant something to you. I mean, you then went from this house to another house that you that you found that was quite different, right? Yeah, George said that he would like to move and he would like to find a house big enough to have a recording studio. And I think I might have gone slightly over the top. <laughs> this house was so big, it could have had three recording studios. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was sort of Victorian Gothic and in very, very bad state of repair. There was grass growing up through the floorboards in the dining room, for example. And we just loved trying to put it back to its former glory. And, and another sense of refuge was what you found in meditation and on the spiritual side of, of life. And what I, I, I liked in the book, particularly when you highlighted a spiritual bookstore that was in London, and you said that this was a bookstore that was very meaningful to you because you started exploring that side of things, which led to trips to India and that sort of thing. Uh, yes, so I was sort of already sort of slightly on the path of trying to find out what we're all doing in this life, what it's for. And then the Beatles went on tour to Australia, and while they were there, I saw a little advertisement in one of the papers uh, talking about uh, transcendental meditation. So I phoned my girlfriend and said, should we go and check this out? So we went and we thought it was wonderful. We loved the idea of meditating in this way. So when the Beatles came back from Australia, I told George all about it. And you know, things, magical things happen in those days. Paul phoned about a week later saying, hey, is this guy called Maharishi coming to London to give a talk? Shall we all go? And we all went. And uh, Maharishi couldn't believe that uh, they brought so much publicity with them. He loved it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He certainly did. And there, you have some remarkable photographs of that period. And that seems to be a time when you started expressing your your artistic vein as a photographer as well. It might have been before then, but it seemed like, because at one point you say, you were so aware of the photographs you were taking, taking, but you said, I wish that I had taken portraits of everybody there. Well, yeah, Mitchell, the thing is that, you know, I knew, I was aware I'm in a very special situation, and particularly when we were all in India meditating, 
and I had my camera, of course, but I didn't want to, um, you know, be greedy and take too many photographs and irritate everyone. So, no, of course, I wish I had, but it's all too late. I'm kind of reliving my time with the book, but I came across, this is just such a great picture. Would you talk a little bit about where this picture came from? Um, I wish I could give you a lot of information, except I know I'm wearing a Mary Quant dress. And, and I think I must have seen this shot because I think I went to the barber and asked for a haircut <laughs> like George's in this picture. Oh, How many got beetle cuts when they oh, were young? Sweet. Huh? All of us, right? But you know what's funny? When George and I went to Los Angeles, we thought we'd go to Disneyland. And so we went to D Disneyland and uh, they wouldn't let us in. George's hair was too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. We all know Twiggy and we know some of the other names that came after, but you were probably the first kind of single-named kind of model that was out there. You, had, you have a photograph that's stunning, of, and it really shows the transition, a photograph of the models from the 50s and early 60s, and then you're in there as well, like a bright light. And everybody else is very dark and gray and staid. So talk about that shift and that change that happened. Well, I was asked if I'd like to be photographed by the very eminent John French, who was very grand and very English. And he was used to taking models from the 50s who were very elegant. They're normally kind of aristocratic and completely different to me who I wanted to do complete different makeup and you know have ruffled up hair and they were really smart and sleek. Anyway, so um, I arrived at the studio and all these really amazing models were there. They were quite intimidating in a way and made me feel even younger than I was probably. And I was wearing my favorite dress and John French told us where to sit. And I was sitting in the front and he sort of told his assistant where to put the lights, etc. It seemed to take ages. And then the camera was sitting on a tripod and John French was standing near the camera and like a conductor, he said, okay, one, two, three. And then his assistant clicked the shutter. It was really bizarre. But, uh, but anyway, I'm glad I have that photograph. You show this, this letter that was stunning, the letter that you thought was from a fan. Mm. And it was from a fan, but not exactly <laughs> the fan you thought it was. No. And it's in the book, and you show it in the book. And it's the letter from, from Eric Clapton. Yeah. Would you talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, we George and I are great friends with Eric. They used to play guitar together a lot. And I was sort of realizing that Eric was becoming quite fond of me. And then one day, one morning, there was a, a letter arrived in the post, and I opened it, and it was rather mysterious. It said, "Dearest L," uh, does it? I think, I don't know what. Dearest L. Yeah. Dot, 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 and dot. blah 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 blah. And I thought, oh God, who's this from? So I showed it to George and said, "Look, I've got, <laughs> I've got this letter from a loony, and <laughs> look at this." <laughs> and we thought no more about it until that evening. Eric phoned, he said, did you get my letter? Said, what? I didn't realize that uh, you felt this way. And later came the book on Layla, Layla, uh, Layla and Maj Majnun, so, which became a song later on as well. Um, that was all 
you know, so interesting. And your your time with Eric was so different than your time with the Beatles because you also went on tour. You you at times were up on stage with Eric Clapton. Is that right? Oh, it was the best thing being on tour. I couldn't believe how exciting it was, uh, especially as I would allow I was allowed to stand on the side of the stage and watch them playing, and I could take endless photographs. But what was fascinating was to look out to the audience that seemed to go on and on forever. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I thought it was really exciting. And of course, in those days, where, where if the audience wanted an encore, they'd light their big lighters, you see, so little flames. <laughs> Whereas now, I think, it's turn on the phone. Yeah, yeah. It was fascinating by... The fact of, of <laughs> it's a very funny story, about when you and Eric got married. It was in Arizona, I believe. And there, I didn't know that Arizona had a requirement to get a, to get a, uh, a vaccination, right? Yeah. And he wouldn't do it. Eric I don't think he's doing it still, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Eric has some sort of thing about needles. He hates needles. Lucky he wasn't a proper junkie, I, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, when you get married in Arizona, the law requires that you have a... What's it called? It's a vaccination, yeah, but it was a rubella. rubella. Rubella, That's it. So he said, I'm not going, I'm not going. So we have to send somebody. So one of his roadies looked a little like him. So the roadie and I went off to have our vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to explore a little bit further because this is a book of photographs. It's also a book of your photographs. And there's an amazing photograph at the end here, which in some ways is kind of a full circle photograph. And I'm going to show this to you. It's the one about the, the photograph of the girl sitting on the rock. Talk about this photograph and how it came to Yeah, I was always keen to learn more about photography. So I phoned a friend of mine who lived miles out of London in a place called Cornwall. And I said, Charlie, can you give me some lessons? I feel like driving down to the country. It takes about four and a half, five hours. So I drove down there and I arrived at his house studio. He said, oh, come on, you're late. I said, oh my God, I've just been driving for five hours. He said, well, we're going off now. I'm photog photographing this couple for something, for a magazine. And he's going to have them standing in front of big waves. And so he's... His girlfriend and I went along too. And while the, he, Charlie was photographing the couple, his girlfriend said to me, do you want to photograph me? And I said, yeah, dang, I'd love to. So I was putting some film into my Hasselblad camera, bending her, and I looked up and she'd taken all her clothes off. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. You should have seen all the people on the beach. They couldn't believe their luck. Well, the men, anyway. And, and so I thought I'd better be quick. Otherwise, it'll all be over. So I said to just sit on this rock and do that classic pose of putting your head forward and wishing your hair backwards, you see. And then when I got home and I processed the film, the very last one shows that as she was doing that, a wave came in just behind her and it looks as if she's spouting out the water. It's a beautiful photograph. Buy the book for that, too. Um, and you know your life as a photographer is really fully formed. You've had, you've had photo shows uh, all over the world. Yeah. What's next? Are you going to continue with the photography? Uh, I, you know, photography is my passion. Uh, you know, I don't care if my photographs aren't for sale. I just love taking photographs, and I love having them printed. 
there's a certain amount of photographs I've taken over the years that um, certain galleries in different parts of the world like me to show, to exhibit. So I'm going to Japan, for example, at the end of May for a photo exhibition then. And they decide what photos they'd like me to exhibit. And so I go along, of course it's fun. And that's a, but you know, besides those, which are old photos really, I like to do new things. And I love photographing flowers, which is my passion actually. I love that. But I love music. I love all sorts of music. You know, from, I don't know, from Jamaican, Latin American, classical music. And um, art, I mean, there are so many wonderful artists, incredible exhibitions that you can see anywhere, in any city mainly, um, well, here and, and London certainly. And um, I don't know, anything that is creative, I love to see. I love architecture, for example. Anything that is beautiful and pleasing to the eye touches my heart. What, uh, to change subject just a little bit, Given your vast history and, and your life experience, can you make any comments today about what you're seeing in, in, in fashion, in the fashion culture? I'd be curious as to what your thinking is today as you see the, the world of fashion developing as it is. Um, well, I'm really, I can't help notice an awful lot of girls are wearing clothes that I would have worn in the 60s. And which is sort of, in a way, it's second-hand, because it's already been done. And I think that, why haven't they got their own fashion? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Instead, yeah, so, you know, I mean, okay, torn jeans, painted jeans, all of that. Very funny, but, you know, every day. <laughs> you know. It's funny that you say that. As I was driving to the store for this event tonight, I saw a mother and her daughter wa walking down the street with the biggest bell-bottom jeans that you could oh, possibly imagine. I mean, yeah, like yeah. And I thought, how appropriate coming to this tonight. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice. I don't know. I don't know about fashion. I think really it should be down to what colours suit your skin, your complexion, and also what sort of shape you are, so that you exaggerate what is good about your body, and not try and follow some sort of fashion. That because it's in the pages of a magazine, that you should actually try and wear them. It doesn't work. Just wear what, what suits you and what colours suit you. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Patty Boyd, thank you so much. Thank you so much.